Oh, good morning all again. Uh, we are now five days away from Christmas. I think it's five days, five or six days. Um, and if you were maybe not here last week or joining us, we are in part two of a series called The Way of the Cross. And I just realized that I forgot my glasses. So you could have a very short sermon. So can you give me 30 seconds of grace while I get my glasses? <laughs> yeah. Okay, there we go. That's the sermon you're going to have this morning. Otherwise, it could have been very short. Um, so, we're leading up to Christmas, and Christmas is often marked as the season of joy and peace and freedom. And it is often a time when we lay down our differences, we come together, we put aside family feuds, and we might enjoy a Christmas uh, lunch or dinner together. Uh, but it can be quite short lived. Because after that, we go back to our same sort of heart attitudes towards one another. But here at City Reach, we believe in claiming true and lasting peace and joy, not just in one season, but in all seasons of our lives. And that's why we talk about the cross. That's why we look to the cross this morning. You see, the cross is this unique thing that it, it calls us to die, to die to our desires, to die to our ways in which we want to live. But then at the same time, it offers us life. You know, the way of the cross is very much being a way of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you will know that Jesus challenges you. He makes you uncomfortable. He challenges us with, what are you really living for? What are those things that really have a hold of us, right, of our hearts? But at the same time, that cross then offers us freedom. So in this series, we're looking at some of the idols in our lives, those things that uh, they can look good, they are good, but we can make them God things. And when we make them God things, what we do is we, we make them common when God actually intended them to be sacred. You know, he's given us gifts and things to enjoy and they to be used for his glory. But what we can do is we become so focused on the gift that what we end up doing is corrupting the gift that he's given us. And we make it common rather than the special gift from the gift giver that we're supposed to be looking at. So this morning we're looking at this question, the cross or a crush? Now, uh, a couple of months ago, we were sitting around the dinner table, and my daughter, who was eight years old at the time, very casually and out of the blue suddenly said to me, who's your celebrity crush? And there was this kind of nervous laughter around the table, and I said, like, where, where, did you, where did you hear that from? Is that from school, from Disney? Like, where did you get that idea? And um, we might think, oh, that's just some harmless eight-year-old fun. But what's the idea behind that? The idea is that people who are made in the image of God are actually there for our pleasure. Right, we're expected to desire them. 
They marketed in such a way that actually we're encouraged to desire them in an unhealthy way. Now, here's the thing that got me. When my daughter asked me that question, immediately I did think of someone. You see, when I was in high school, I had like one of those hard pencil cases, and I had these pictures of this certain actress all over this pencil case. And I remembered some of those things I thought looking at those pictures. And so I turned to my daughter and I said, you are not having a celebrity crush or any crush. Just trying to kind of kill it dead there. Now, just the context of this thing, there might be some of us here today, most of us, who identify as Christians. We've said we've chosen to follow Jesus. We've chosen that what he said is going to shape the way we think It's going to shape the way we think about ourselves. It's going to shape the way we think about others. And we're committed to obeying and following his teaching, to relying on his grace to change us and in rejoicing in the forgiveness that he gives us. But maybe there are some of you here today, you've been dragged along by a family member or a friend, uh, or you've been promised a nice meal at the end of the service Uh, We love having you here, and we're so grateful that you can join us today. But maybe you're working out this whole Christian thing, right? And you might have heard uh, some of the way Christians talk about sex and marriage, and you're like, oh boy, here we go again. Um, What I would, my encouragement would be to you is to know that Jesus speaking today, he is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who said, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm following you, Um, and we're going to let Jesus' teaching shape our lives and the way that we live. But for some of us who maybe that's not the case, my encouragement to you is not really to focus on what Jesus says about sex and marriage, but to really wrestle with the person of Jesus. Now, for those of us who are committed disciples of Jesus, we're committed to the way of the cross. It is important that we listen carefully what Jesus is saying in this passage. Now, just a warning, uh, this is probably not a feel-good Christmas message. It's going to make some of us uncomfortable. Now, the truth is, if any of us have walked with Jesus for long enough, this is what he does. (laughs) He makes us uncomfortable, and he challenges us, but it's never to condemn us. Never to condemn us. Jesus does that because he gently wants to lead us out of that place. He wants to rescue us from ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but often when I listen to a sermon, um, I often think, oh, that would be a great sermon for so-and-so. That would be a great sermon for Greg. When When this is finished, I've got to forward the sermon to Greg. But what I would encourage you to do this morning is to ask the question, Lord, what are you saying to me? Is there a place in my life where the thrill and the excitement of the crush is something I love more than the way of the cross? Now, Jesus opens this little talk on on marriage. And he says, the real problem that we have where marriage would end up with adultery, is a heart problem. And he says it like this. He starts off in verse 27, 
And he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus is there. He's quoting the Ten Commandments, which are found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And he's saying that is a good law. It is right. It is true. It is there to respect and protect marriage. It's saying like, you know that moment where you stand before your spouse and you make those promises, I will, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, to death do us part. When you make those promises, they are good promises. It expresses the heart of God. It is right that you are faithful to your covenant partner and that you shouldn't ever end up in bed with someone who isn't your spouse. It's a law from the heart of God. But what Jesus does is he says, no, you know what? It's a great law, but it doesn't go deep enough. It only addresses the external, right? You see, I can obey that law externally, and yet I can still be guilty. And how is that? How can that be? Jesus says it like this. He says in verse 28, but I say to you, this is what you heard, but I say to you, Jesus is suddenly raising the bar. He's actually saying, That law is good, it's great, but it's not deep enough. What you actually need to do is understand the root of the problem. And what Jesus is communicating here is that he has authority to speak on matters of the law. Now those listening there, they would have liked, it would have shocked them. No one, no Jew would have ever challenged the Torah, the law, and said, you know what, that commandment is good. I actually take it a step further. Jesus is effectively saying, I'm the one who gave that law. And what I'm going to do is fulfill the law. I'm going to fill it, fill. I'm going to give you its full meaning. I'm going to give you the heart behind that law. So what Jesus is doing, it's very subtle, but what he's doing here, he's actually saying, I'm God. Listen to the heart of the matter. And Jesus would say, the problem that we have is a heart condition. And he will say it like this. He said, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already, already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now what Jesus is doing is he's asking this question. How, how do you get to that point after the day that you married and you've made these promises to, to one another and maybe you've been married a month or a year or 10 years or 25 years, how do you get to the point where one day you find yourself in bed with someone who is not your spouse? And Jesus says, well, actually, the problem lies much further upstream. He said, you will commit the act here, but actually the problem began way over here where no one could see. And Jesus says, it actually begins with a look, begins with a look. Now, Jesus is not saying that if you walk down the street and you notice someone attractive, you know that feeling, you look like you notice someone is attractive and you kind of glance at them. He's not saying if you do that, that's it, you're done, you're finished, you blew it. What Jesus is asking is what do you do after that initial look? 
What do you do? You see, here's what we should do. Here's what we should do. We should walk down the street, and we notice someone attractive, and we should say, wow, God, I am impressed with your handiwork. That is amazing. Great little bit of creation there. And then we should stop and go, that whoever it is, he or she who's attractive, we should stop and say, Lord, would you protect that person? I know being that attractive would be possibly a temptation to me and a temptation to others. Could you please protect that person? That's what we should do in those moments. But what Jesus is saying, what we tend to do is have that lingering look. You know, I think the, the ESV puts it right here. It says, with lustful intent. Intent, right? We know that point where it's no longer just a look. It becomes something more. And any of you, any of you who've been a victim of that look, you know exactly what I mean. You know exactly what I mean. But the other side of that coin is there's some of us who've given that look. Who've given that look. And you know what's going on in your mind, right? That little movie that you play there. And what you're doing is you're using that person. In that moment, you're using them to fuel sexual desire. Your sexual desire, right? You didn't ask for permission. They don't know you're doing it. But in that moment, you are maximizing your pleasure. Now, we live in a culture that's going to say, like, what's the big deal? Just relax, guys. Jesus, that's, that's pretty intense, right? No one's actually doing anything. They're just thinking it. Surely it's not such a big deal. And Jesus is saying, right, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Because you might not, in that moment, physically jump into bed with someone else. But given the right opportunity, oh, you would like to. Oh, you would really like to. And Jesus says, you don't want to do that. Once you plant that seed and you water it, it's going to grow. And when it grows, it's an ugly weed that just causes destruction. You know, James puts it like this. It says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Jesus is saying, don't do it. Don't plant that seed. Don't water it, because it's never going to end well. It's going to produce something ugly in your heart. But you know what's interesting about this passage? Like I, I read it and just kind of it says everyone. And then it, you look, who's Jesus addressing in this passage? It says uh, everyone who looks at a woman. Who's he addressing? Men. He's addressing men, right? Now, the context Jesus is giving this sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. He's not sitting with his 12 disciples, which are men, and he's saying, listen, boys, gather around me. This is important. You need to gather. No, he's speaking to a multitude, a mixed crowd of men and women, and yet he singles out men. Why would he do that? Is Jesus saying, listen, women never have an inappropriate thought? No, that's, you guys know that, right? That's not true. 
But what Jesus is saying is that being a disciple, being a disciple and a follower of Jesus means that the way you think is different. You are in a kingdom now where women are to be respected, they are to be protected, and they're to be valued, and they're safe, even in your thoughts. Even in your thoughts, you treat them as sisters. Jesus is saying, men, as disciples, are you going to make this choice? Are you going to make a choice where the thrill and the excitement that you, the movie that you play in your head, is that going to be what you go to, or are you going to go to the cross? And you're going to lay your desires down over there. You know, in your mind, there are times when we, we just reduce people to merely body parts. And Jesus is saying, as disciples, no, we let Jesus shape our hearts. We let Jesus see what's going on. And we're not going to just be content with doing the outward thing. Guys, this is what the Pharisees were awesome at. Right? They had the, the perfect religious outlook. They looked like they did the right thing, said the right thing, prayed the right thing, but actually inside, they're just hollow and rotten. Jesus was hardest on, on the religious type. He said, you guys are nothing but whitewashed walls. On the outside, you look nice and clean and white, but inside, you're just hollow. You're just hollow. Jesus says, don't, don't be like that. Women are, are to be treated as fellow image bearers. They're made in the likeness of God. Treat them as sisters. Now, for some of us, we might be feeling, oh my goodness, that is me. And you might be feeling a little bit bad about yourself. And can I say, that's not the worst thing. As long as it's not the end of the story, right? As long as we don't finish there. And with Jesus... It's never the end of the story. It's never the end of the story. Because Jesus doesn't just point out the problem. He doesn't just say you've got a heart problem. No, he actually points you to a solution. And his solution is pretty radical, right? It's pretty radical. And what he says, like it grips your attention. And this is what he says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, just pluck it out and throw it away. I don't know why he picks on the right eye. Like the left eye is good, the right eye is bad. I don't know why, but he pick out the right eye, throw that one away, you know, because you don't want to go to hell with, with you'd rather lose one of your members than going to hell. He says, if, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than going to hell. So there you go, guys. That's the solution. A little bit of self-mutilation, and there you go. Now, I don't know about you, but... That makes me feel pretty uncomfortable. You know, is Jesus really saying that in order to be pure, we need to cut off our hands and pluck out our eyes? Is, is that really what he wants us to do? Because if it is, my guess is that there should be a lot of people here today with an eye patch on, or one eye, right? You walk into the office tomorrow, and you see all these, all these people with the eye patch, and you go, oh yeah, Christian, me too. You know, hand missing, oh yeah, Matthew 5. Is that really what Jesus wants us to do? Now, Jesus is not saying you have to physically cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, but he is using the shocking language. 
He does want to get your attention, and he, he wants you to get your attention because he wants you to know how serious this thing is. How a seed that's planted in your heart where no one can see, that it, it will eventually destroy you. And he's saying, guys, you've got to do everything you can, everything you can to pluck this thing out of your life, to get rid of it. You have to do something radical. And you know, the first step is to identify and acknowledge, hey, we all, we all have a heart problem. I cannot stand before you today saying that I am pure in this regard. But I'm guessing that goes for most of us. Now, the question we have to ask is, why does Jesus make such a big deal of this? Why is he so fixated on this point, right? There's so much else he could say, but he picks this thing to use this really radical language of, of cutting off body parts. Why does he do that? Jesus, isn't, aren't you going just a little bit too far? You know, outwardly, I'm doing the right thing. People think I'm great. Isn't that enough? Jesus would say, You've taken something that's sacred and you're making it common. Guys, sex is sacred. It is a gift from God. It is a beautiful thing. It's God's idea, right? He's not surprised when, when people, he doesn't look down and go, oh my goodness, how did they even think of that? That's his idea and, and he invented it and he's pleased with it. If you go back right to the beginning of the Bible, you see God's intention for it and his desire is that two would become one, that when people come together in this intimacy, it, it's a bonding time. It makes them one flesh. It says in, in the second chapter of Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his, his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. One flesh, taking two and binding us together. You know, uh, scientists these days, like neuro, neuroscientists, as they've examined the brain, they worked out that in this moment of intimacy, your body releases this chemical that acts as a bonding agent. It bonds you together. Now, science is only catching up to what God had already said in the beginning anyway. You see, God looks at it and he goes, this is good, guys. It is good. It is a beautiful thing. It is a sacred thing. Treasure it as it should be treasured. Don't make it common. Don't make it common. Uh, you know, sex is often described as a fire. Now, what do you guys think of when, when, you, when you hear the, the word fire? You know, for some of us, we might picture a nice a fireplace, right, where warmth and, and coziness. And for other of us, we might picture a bushfire of utter destruction. Now, if you picture a fireplace, it's got this beautiful boundary that contains the fire. And Jesus created sex with this boundary, the boundary of marriage between one man and one woman. And he said, that's the boundary. And the fire within that boundary, it is a beautiful thing, right? Christmas time, I don't, it's very different for us Australians to relate to Christmas movies. I don't, do you ever find that? 
It's like you watch Christmas movies and it's snowing outside, and for us it's 40 degrees outside. But in those Christmas movies, have you noticed, they all kind of like, there's the scene where they snuggled around the fire, the fireplace. It's, it's warm. It gives warmth to the whole house. It draws people in. Jesus is saying that's, that's in the boundary. It is a beautiful thing. It gives life. It gives warmth to the marriage. But if you had to take that exact same fire and you had to scoop it out and you just took it and you dumped it on the floor, what would happen? Would it be the same reaction? Everyone goes, ooh, that's nice, nice and cozy. No, the fire, there would be a fire, there'd be panic and it would burn the house down. It would burn the house down. Now, Proverbs 6.27 asks this question. It says, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burnt. Now, it's a question, right? Yes or no? Now, some of you look a little bit unsure about that. My suggestion, go home and try this, and you will know the answer, right? Can a man scoop coals into his lap without his clothes being burnt? I would say it's going to be his clothes and a whole lot more. That's going to be on fire. Guys, and, and that's what happens when we take this thing that is beautiful and sacred and God-given and we take it out of the boundary of which it was created for. And it causes destruction. You guys might know this, this guy. He's uh, Tiger Woods. Now, years ago, when people saw this photo, they would go, Tiger Woods, the golfer. You know, he was, he was like the poster child of sports stars. He was married, kids, great image, renowned golfer. And all that came crushing down one day when it turned out that it really, what was hidden, had become exposed. What had begun with unchecked thoughts and unchecked lusts had spilled over into multiple affairs, broke up his marriage, hurt his kids. And now when people see the photo of Tiger Woods, they don't automatically think of Tiger Woods the golfer. They think of Tiger Woods who destroyed his family. And you know, this, we might look at Tiger in judgment and go, oh, how could he? But Jesus is saying, just be careful because it could begin in here for you too. It could begin in here for you too. He said, like, the problem is a heart problem. And a heart problem requires heart surgery. Now, Jesus is saying, do the surgery. Do the surgery, right? That stuff that you think is hidden and it's just in your head, it's like he sees it. He knows it's there. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. And that's the reason why he wants you to deal with it. It's because he loves you. So he's saying, do the surgery, guys. Do the surgery. Now, if any of you have had surgery before, what's that feeling you get just before you have surgery? You're like, you're anxious. You know, is it going to hurt? Uh, what am I going to be like under anesthetic? What's my recovery time going to be like? But you know what? You will do the surgery. Why? Because you know it's going to bring healing. You know it's going to bring health back to you. You know it's important to, to cut out that thing that is causing the harm. And here's the thing. God will give you the grace to do that. 
He will give you the grace to do that. He wants you to get healthy. He wants you to be free. You know, we now live in a culture that has turned making people into objects and putting it on a screen for our pleasure into a multi-billion dollar industry. The revenue in the pornography industry was 97 billion last year. 97 billion. Now, just to put that in context, the NBA, right, the National Basketball Association, teams all around the world, watched all around the world, payers paid lots and lots of money, their revenue was 8.6 billion, as opposed to 97 billion. More than 10 times the amount of money. Now, guys, where culture spends its money will tell you where its heart is. It's designed to lure people, people who are made in the image of God, and turn them into nothing more than body parts. And you know what? It, it makes, if, if we consume that, it makes us less than the image bearers we were called to be. And it certainly makes them less than the image bearers that they are called to be. You know, it's as if someone knew, someone knew the problem is with our hearts. How can I pray on that weakness? Now, here is a, a picture of a, a deer caught in a trap. Now, you have to ask the question, what would cause a deer to walk into a trap like that? A deer is walking through a wooded forest. It's an unnatural thing. What would cause a deer to walk into a trap like that? What they do with the trap is they bait it, right? For a deer, they, they can either they put in food or apparently they put in urine, a weird thing, right? Deers like the smell of urine. But it's this bait that attracts them into this place. Oh, yeah, that looks exciting. That smells great. It looks good. I'm going to do it. No, I shouldn't. It's a trap. I, it looks good. I really don't want to. And then before you know it, they're in the trap. Door goes down, and they are stuck. Uh, there's an organization called Fight the New Drug. Now, it's, it's not a Christian organization, but it is an organization where they've explored what are the damaging effects of pornography, right? This is not a harmless thing that's out there and it's like, hey, you've got desires, like you're hungry, you eat a hamburger, you've got these desires, you go to pornography. No, it's incredibly harmful. It's incredibly harmful and these are not Christians looking at it. They're just saying what we already know. They say it destroys relationships, it destroys how we see one another how we look at the opposite sex. Those that have been trapped like that deer in the trap, it, it causes depression, it causes shame and guilt. And what they said, this thing is so powerful, it is like a drug. It's like a drug on the brain. It just traps them, right? They said it's like in your brain, you, you have this reward center. And when you, you do something that's positive and good, your brain just gives you this hit of dopamine. 
that kind of reminds you, oh, that's a really good thing. So you, you have a good meal Christmas time, and you're like, whack of dopamine, that's good. You know, you go and have a, you do some exercise, your body feels good, whack of dopamine, that feels great. You're kissing your wife, dopamine hit, that's great. It's saying, hey, this is a good thing, keep doing it. And God designed us that way. Come to the cross, come and walk with him, spend time in his word, dopamine hit, this is good, we receive his grace. But like anything, it can be hijacked. And when it's hijacked, your, your brain, brain scientists have actually discovered this, that you cause these little pathways to form. And they become so well-worn. It's like the first time you're walking through a forest, you kind of not know where you're going, and you kind of got to make your own path. The second time, it's a lot easier. The third time, it's a lot easier. And before you know it, you've worn this path, this rut that's developed. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, I don't know if any of you have driven on the beach, and the car in front of you has, has got, like, they've made these tracks, these deep ruts, and you're driving in the ruts, and you can feel that they are actually controlling you, and it's so difficult to get out of it, and that's what this thing does to us. It creates these ruts in our brains, and it destroys our hearts, and Jesus is saying, you know the best way to get out of a rut is dig a trench, dig a trench, right? Dig a trench. Now, the thing with a trench, it's intentional. You have decided, and it's like a military thing. You've decided we are gonna put up a defense, we are gonna dig a hole that is deep that we will not get caught in a rut. We are gonna make an effort where we spend time with other believers, we talk about what's really going on in our thought life. We spend time in God's word, we're building a trench. We're digging a trench. Romans 12 says it like this. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Build a trench in your mind that isn't a rut that's formed, but build a trench. Now, maybe for some of us, it means getting real for the first time. Maybe it means just telling someone, right, this is my thought life, it's not as good as it seems. Outwardly, I might seem like I'm doing the right things, but up here, man, I'm thinking things that I shouldn't think. It's bringing it into the light. It's, it's about getting some accountability. You know, the, the, I catch up with two people, and the question that we always ask each other is, how's your thought life? How's your thought life? Because I might be able to say, oh, I've done this and this this week, I've said this thing, but it's when you really get to the heart. Now, what have you been thinking? What has been in your heart this week? You know, guys, and Jesus came. He came to rescue. He wants to forgive you. He wants to rescue some of us today. That's the beauty of the cross. Really, if you look at the cross, it should be just a thing that says rescue sign. Rescue sign right here. Right? The key to freedom is the cross. And here's the thing, often, often we think, man, I'm the only one who has these thoughts. If people knew what I was thinking, if they knew what I think of that person I'm working with, if they knew what I'm looking at, man, it, my reputation would be destroyed. 
And what it does is it just causes us to keep it hidden, keep our thought life to ourselves. And the whole time we're watering our hearts with unhealthy things. But here's the thing, guys. He who calls you out of that place, he gives you the grace to do it. Right? That's the call of the cross. The call of the cross is, come, come, give me, give me your sin. Give me the grossest stuff that you've got, the worst possible stuff that you've got, and I will give you life. I will give you righteousness. You know, and it's that moment where we have to decide where the crush, is it more thrilling to us? Is it, does it look more exciting to us? In a moment which could ultimately destroy us, or is it a lifetime of coming before the cross and saying, Lord, your way, your way. I want to finish with, um, with a story. It's Christina and Sherman's story. Now, um, Christina grew up in a, in a loving Christian home. They loved Jesus. She was involved in church from, with, from a little girl. Uh, she became a youth leader. She became a young adults leader. And she went away on a young adults camp. And she, she met her husband. And he was serving in ministry. And while they were dating, they had very strict sort of boundaries on, on making sure that they, they were pure and they got married, and for the first two years of marriage, it seemed wonderful. They, they had kids. It looked great on the outside, and she thought it was great. Until one day, Christina discovered that Sherman had, um, had an affair, and it crushed her, absolutely crushed her. She felt so deceived. She couldn't look at him. She sent him out of the house. She was just angry at him angry at him. He was angry at God. He was like, God, how could you do this to me? I've served you all this time, and now this has happened. And her husband, Sherman, was a broken man, broken man. He went and he joined a ministry called Pure Life Ministry, where he got help. He got men in his life that could minister to him, walk him through a whole lot of stuff. And still, Christina wanted nothing to do with him. Until one day, she's sitting in church, and she hears the sermon on the cross. She gets this picture of the depth of her own sin, the depth that Jesus would go to to rescue her and forgive her of her sin. And she goes, she realized, I've been forgiven so much, so much, how can I not forgive? And that very day, she walks out of church. She goes and sees her husband. She asks him for forgiveness for turning him away. And he asks her forgiveness for what he's done to her. And that moment began this moment of reconciliation, of, of joining them back together to be one flesh. And she said it was hard. It wasn't easy. It wasn't all rosy. It took time to rebuild trust, rebuild intimacy. But here's the thing she said. She goes, you know what? I look back now and I realize today our marriage is better than what it was before the affair. She goes, we are now more intentional with each other. We are now more tender with each other. We are now more forgiving with each other. Guys, and that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. He takes 
the ugliest thing in our life, the thing that could cause the most harm and damage to ourselves and to others, and even in moments where we mess up and we do the worst possible thing, if you come to the cross, He takes it, He takes the hit for us, and He gives you His life. That's what He does. So guys, I know this hasn't been the cheery Christmas sermon, right? Uh, we've got that to look forward to on Friday, and we do have every reason to rejoice in an awesome Savior. But we have a cross. We have a Savior who died on the cross for you and was raised to life. And because he did that, man, there is lasting joy. There is lasting peace, and there is lasting freedom. So don't settle for the temptation of momentary pleasure, momentary joy. No, come to the cross. Can you stand? I would love to pray for us. I'd love to pray for my own heart in this. And then we're going to worship the one who saves us. Lord Jesus, we we stand before you as your people this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, as it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit and joint and marrow, as it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid the penalty for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have such a wonderful and beautiful Savior that knows us at our very worst and yet would rescue us at that same place. Lord, I pray for my own heart this week. I pray for all of us in this place. Lord, that we would be known as a place where we want to walk in grace, where we want to follow you, where we want to live out your teaching, where we forgive, where we reconcile, where we're at peace with you and one another. Lord, I pray, give us that grace today and give us the courage to proclaim that truth to others. Give us the courage to be real. Give us the the courage to confess those things that have been holding us back and and a hold in our lives, Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you and we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name.